Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Chris Yogurst, who is the author of a new book, The Warner Brothers, a biography of probably the most important family in Hollywood, certainly in the creation of Hollywood from the silence on all through to the present day. Um, if you enjoy the conversation, please remember to like, uh, leave a review if you can, but before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. So, so obviously, you're writing this book in the centenary of the uh, of the studio. I I've interviewed quite a few people in the last year or two. Uh, you know, uh, Sam Watson doing the uh, with Janine Basinger. Mm-hmm. This sort of classical. We're going to go back to the beginning of everything. And I found your book. It gave me a really good overview of of sort of the beginning of Hollywood and how connected everything is. Oh, it's incredible. And it is, I'm glad you mentioned Sam because he I just did a talk at Book Soup in LA that he hosted for me. And you know, and and yeah, he's he's fantastic. And he's yeah, you know, equally as interested in, you know, every layer of the entire history of it. And and yeah, the centennial 
thing that was kind of a happy accident i mean the book took longer or i, I shouldn't say it took longer but it was like i you know I, 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 I as i've mentioned a lot i've i i wanted this book to be a biography of harry warner because i was i kind of wanted to make him more center and then pat mcgilligan said you got to do all of the warner brothers because not everyone knows who harry warner is and he he's right but yeah this it, what's interesting about the warners like you said everything is so connected that by by 1923 when they incorporate as warner bros they are they are old pros right like they have been they they have they ran theaters they ran distribution chains they've been shut down by edison and they started up again like they they had been through it man you know they made movies and had successes and flops so and, and even then even the pre like you know we think of you know hollywood's golden age is kind of starting in the 20s you know a lot of the silent film purists will go before that which i won't argue with either but yeah how connected everything was by like 1912 right like all these people everyone knew who everyone was you know lemley and fox and the warners and lasky um they yeah they all knew everybody already and you know you would have thought that 10 years from then it was going to be this booming industry that was going to be leading the world for generations. Yeah, yeah, that's what's crazy is because we're watching it, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, and we're seeing these guys uh, on the ground floor of this amazing industry. But there's absolutely no evidence at the time that that is going to happen. I mean, they're just they're on the next fad. I mean, he's they're they're selling sort of Nickelodeon style events that aren't even films at the, uh, a certain point well yeah well and with warners they were i mean they were entrepreneurs it was just in their blood this just desire to get ahead and not go back to where they came from and yeah they they were you i'm glad you said fad that's a perfect word because they were they ran bicycle shops they ran bowling alleys grocery stores butcher shops i mean they all of it they tried it and they're like oh this is the next thing this is the next thing so they were but I think that what that speaks to is the type of movies they ended up greenlighting, you know, decades later, because they were always they always tried to have their finger on the pulse of the culture. Right. And that's exactly what their movies were doing. So they were doing essentially the same thing, uh, you know, by by jumping on the, the bicycle fad, um, doing it just slightly too late. Um, but it was it was really no different than like, hey, what's what's in the headlines? What are people talking about? Let's make a movie about that and engage in our culture. So they're just doing it on a bigger scale, right? Um, but it's the same it's the same mentality that that drove them to success in Hollywood that they were doing very small time in in Ohio and Philly. Yeah, well, let's go back even further than that because they're really influenced by their family and about the fact that they're coming from Europe. Where where are they from, and what sort of sort of what is their the old country background that they're they're, they're coming out of? So yeah, so it's what what is now Poland, and the word um, the 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 city that they're from. I always hesitate to try to pronounce it. I got to figure out who knows how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to embarrass myself. But it starts with a K. But yeah, that's where yeah Ben and Pearl you know, are living there and they are, I mean, it, it's, it's very much, I mean, it, from what was described to by the family or, or to the family uh, from people who could remember, it sounds a lot like what we hear about 1937, 38, 39 in Poland, where you're, you're, you're living in fear, you're, you're practicing your faith in secret. And I mean, it is just not safe. So they they decide to get out. And it's the, you know, kind of a similar story to a lot of people where one of Ben's friends goes to New York and writes him. It's like, oh, everything is better here. 
So Ben goes, of course, not everything is better. Um, I mean, probably better than it was where they were. They could, you know, practice their faith without fear of being murdered. But it's still, you know, poverty, getting work is tricky. And, you know, it's it's a kind of story where you you make enough money, you send for some of your family, you make a little bit more money. Eventually, you get everybody here. Uh, and then it was a slow burn to, you know, I know there's the famous story of the um, the shoe repair shop that the, Harry is the oldest was working with him on. But I mean, he had all kinds of jobs. Uh, you know, he was a fur trader for a while. Uh, so all over the place, you know, they ran the, the grocery store, like I said, but they were they were they were very, very determined. So the parents uh, really that influence uh, came through to the entire family uh, top to bottom. But also one of the things that that really solidified the family that came from both parents was this like all for one and one for all mentality. And, right. and that's why uh, the family was so close. Of course, Jack was always kind of the outlier in this, but they 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 really taught the family that if they stuck together, regardless of if you're in the middle of a big success or a big failure, that you will be OK. And it was this 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 was kind of a leveling you know, it, it was a way to teach them, you know, I guess kind of this, I guess what's the best way to put it? I mean, they, it was just, it was a way to weather whatever storm uh, and, you know, coming from where the, what they did and everything they did, not only growing up overseas, but then also weathering what they did here in the States that they taught their kids that you, you can, you can pretty much prevail through anything. And this primed them for all of this national and internationally followed battles that they would you know they would be a part of throughout their career in hollywood is this what i mean is this what appeals to you as the warners as a story uh, as opposed to any other studio is this the thing that that gets you because i mean even when they're selling shoes as you were saying they're they're kind of they don't just sell shoes they they repair shoes as you wait i mean that's a promise that's a branding yep. that's what runs all the way through Oh, their branding. Yeah, they were brilliant with branding constantly. And, and, you know, that's why I love the repaired while you wait, which, you know, surprised, you know, this banker and then that, you know, got them a foot in the door to 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 get some support later down the road. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I've always been interested in the Warner Brothers because they're so different. I mean, they're in a lot of ways, they're they're the same as a lot of the studio moguls, right? They're, a lot of these guys have the similar immigrant story. They, they were fleeing from their families or fleeing from something. They came here. For promises of a better future so that that tracks with almost all of them probably all of them but yeah with the warner brothers it's that it's that branding and setting themselves apart from everyone else in town whether it was from other shoe shops or other movie studios they were doing that same thing and they're always trying to find their niche right like what makes us different and they did that i mean yeah that's what's so cool about learning about these early businesses there's there's so many things that are actually similar to the hollywood studio decades later so they they start in film uh, as we uh, sort of hinted at earlier, kind of with Nicol right at the very beginning, and and with silent films, uh, and uh, even prior to that with sort of these events, you know, um, almost like sideshows, I guess. And then uh, and then when they move out to California, it's kind of fleeing Edison and his and and his guys, his thugs, really. Oh, absolutely, yeah. They were, you know, they they got they had the Duquesne film distribution company that got shut down by Edison. But yeah, they a lot of people were going out to LA just because it was harder for Edison's attack dogs to keep an eye on them. And yeah, by the late teens, they were in LA. They had they had a a, a lot that they built or that they bought uh, or renting 
for a little while, not far from the Sea League Zoo. So the Sea League Zoo is famous because that's where the MGM Lion was. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, in, you know, the Warner Brothers did an early serial called The Lost World. I believe if I remember correctly, I got a picture in my book of it. And they, you know, they use some of the zoo's animals and that and things like that. So, yeah, they were, they, they wanted to be somewhere. I mean, and not like, you know, a lot of the other studios were doing the same thing. Like, where can we go and actually grow? Because that was the problem. They, they could only get so big before they would get pushed back from Edison's trust, right? And of course, by the late teens, the trust was gone, but some of those threats were still there. Edison was still around. His company was still around. So you've got, you know, how can we, I, I, I get the sense that a lot of the mentality with a lot of these 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 founding figures was was like, where can we go and get big enough that if anybody else comes after us, you know, we are, we actually have some weight to throw around, mm. you know, we'll have a studio, we'll have maybe a, a theater chain, you know, we're going to have some successes under our belt, our name will grab headlines, you know, favorable headlines, like that kind of stuff. So they certainly did. And from like 1918 to 23, it was a really pivotal time where they right they again ripping from the headlines you know they did my four years in germany where they 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 licensed this book so they're also early on that trend too like how can we license something that was popular already built an audience uh and they make that you know during world war one right so they're you know this is something that's uh, you know in the headlines on you know uh, you know people are discussing over coffee so let's make a movie about that um, so they're they're doing that. They're also expanding during this time. They buy the the lot in Hollywood, the Bronson Studios, and they start expanding that. Um, so that is a, it's a big period of growth, the late teens, early twenties, and of course they incorporate in 1923, which is you know why the centennial is this year. But they did a lot leading up to that. So by the time they incorporated, they were very practiced in every every part of the business. Mm, absolutely and it's interesting that that idea of a warner brothers film begins to form at this point and that you know as you say grabbed from the you know ripped from the headlines story and so at this point what is the division of labor between the brothers who's who's doing what and who and and who's got the most power and, and or is it is it more how how's the the fratra <laughs> fratriarchy that's not that's not a, a word but yeah, well no we'll we'll allow it um it it's yeah it's really i mean from the beginning i mean it's harry and albert are the older ones so they're they're the ones from the beginning that i mean even as early as 1905 they are the ones who are who are managing the money they're getting the loans they're the business kind of the business end of this and sam like you know their first theater sam was was running the projector and doing a lot of the technical stuff. And Jack was pretty young yet, maybe taking tickets. And, you know, he tell Jack tells stories of singing in his horrible voice so that you could clear people out in between showings. But by the teens, Jack and Sam were the ones that were, you know, they, even before that, they were the ones who jumped from when they had a, a distribution office in Philadelphia or in Pittsburgh, they went to Norfolk to open another one. Um, once we get past that, Harry and Albert are in New York running offices and Jack and Sam are off either making films or distributing films in other cities. And by the time we get to L.A., uh, Albert and Harry are still in New York. And this is where you, we see the origins of what ends up becoming the Norman Hollywood, right, where the studio bosses are in L.A. and the and the you know the parent companies and the pre, you know, studio presidents are in New York City. Right. So 
um, Jack and Sam. Sam is in LA. Jack spends a little bit of time in San Francisco, um, but when they get the, when they start getting property in LA, it's really Jack and Sam that are are producing movies. Jack likes to say that he was directing some of them, may or may not. I mean, they were early on, but uh, it was really the division of labor was the, pretty much the production side, hands-on kind of stuff was was Jack and Sam. And then all of the the higher end distribution, money management, loan management, all of that was Harry and Albert. And how how does it divide then in terms of who's getting the how how they're distributing the money? I mean, is that is that equitable or is the I'm going to have more salary because I got more responsibility or how's that working out in the you know that the I'm that's a really good question that I don't have a good answer for, unfortunately. I, I'm guessing it was more or less equitable just because I didn't mm. see any battles over that, right, you know, because right. there there probably would have been. Uh, but I, you know, I get this, especially then, I mean, you were talking, you know, 20s, 19-teens, 1920s. I mean, regardless of what they were making or if it was different, it was way more than everybody else in the country. This is becoming one of the biggest studios at this point. This is a, sort of one of the reigning studios. And and of course, the, the and this is where it goes back to perhaps one of my first questions, which is how everything's connected. No sooner these movies started, no sooner is the growth there, than they face this huge challenge of, wait a minute, are we going to transition into sound? Is that technically even possible? How is it going to work with the cinemas and, and the technology? Yeah, this was tricky, right? And there's all the all the story. And that's one of the things I want to do in this book, too. I wanted to expand on Sam's story and mm. who he was behind, you know, what, you know, we didn't just, you know, it wasn't just like, hey, let's let's buy Vitagraph. And then the jazz singer comes out a year later. Like this was a long process. And he really, truly worked himself to death to bring this technology to market. But it's also important to remember that everybody was almost the entire industry did not want sound movies. And even Thomas Edison, once he realized that, that the Warners were getting close to bringing this to market, he, he was in, in the press talking trash about the Warners. I mean, he didn't, and of course he was the, you know, he's the, by this time, he's the famous inventor, Thomas Edison. And he's, you know, like, well, I couldn't, I couldn't make it work. So it's a fool's errand to even try to do it. So there's a little arrogance there, but this this goes back to Sam again, right? He was the one who bought the got the projector to get them to open their first theater in 1905. So here he is again with the next technology that he worked tirelessly with some engineers at Western Electric and uh, both in LA and then they bought Vitagraph in in uh, Brooklyn. And so he's in Brooklyn and he's in New York City renting out spaces, trying to find the best ways to get this really clunky technology to work. I mean, we got to remember this was not, you know, it was William Fox actually had it right, but he he had his own personal problems that were this slid back. But the sound on film technology is what took over. This was the sound on disc where you've got to like start the projector and a wax record at the same time to make sure it's synced up. And if you, you know, somebody bumps it, um or sneezes and they're too close to the record all of a sudden it's off um so i can't imagine what a nightmare this was to to work on um but it was something that sam could could get uh and 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 amplify that was another big part of it you got to remember i mean these these you know speakers were not that great so luckily you had a lot of these old movie houses and, and theaters that were were constructed in a way that the sound would carry you know they got stages so they used to people just talking in, in plays and that sound would carry to the back 
So you got to find the right places to put these speakers with whatever power you can get out of them so people in the back can hear. Um, but it, you also, another thing you had pushing against was, you know, silent movies were easy to sell internationally because you just change out the title or the, the intertitles, right? And you, whatever language, that's easier. If you record the entire thing in English, now you're stuck with English. And if you want to, you know, redub it, that's a whole nother process. You know, that's another you know, really expensive to do, which of course they did eventually. Um, but there was, it, it's an interesting story just because there were so many kind of cultural and economic layers pushing back against this technology actually becoming the norm. And here was Sam thinking like, no, we can do it. We can make this really awesome. Um, and he did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking of the comedians, of course, like Chaplin, uh, you know, resisting and resisting and resisting. And I yep. think rightly resisting because, uh, you know, when he brings out as great a film as The, Grand, the Great Dictator is, his voice is just awful. I just can't stand his voice. It's just like, it's all like, you know, when he does that big speech at the end, he just yep. sounds like a little pipsqueak. And it's just like, it's so uncharismatic. Whereas Laurel and Hardy, uh, uh, you know, yes, they have to, um, they're beloved in Italy, for instance, because Alberto Sordi dubs uh, Oliver Hardy. And so it, it adds to the personality right yeah it's yeah the sound the, the transition is interesting well that's the other one of the other things i learned just as, a, as an aside that was really fascinating because of course warner brothers like everyone else they were starting to build stars right and you're investing and of course they had rin tin tin but they also had um monty blue who we don't really remember much today because he was in silent movies and was big and then was gone and monty blue is one of these people that jack uh kept on the payroll uh, you know, anybody that didn't really make that transition to the new industry in the 30s, he kept on the payroll, which is something that's, you know, for Jack and all of his faults, which are many, uh, he he was, you know, it was it was one of the things I learned in this book is that he was good to a lot of people, just not his family. So, right. you know, we have all these and some of his stars, some of his stars. Um, but there was, yeah, every, every now and again, these kind of stories would pop out where he was like surprisingly good to people. And this was, <laughs> and that was one of them. Yeah. The silent stars. He really, you know, the people that helped build the studio, uh, really helped them out, uh, after that. And when you, so when you're coming into the twenties and thirties and you're coming into the sound period proper, they, their, their choice of stars seem to be a lot of those people who you would look at today and you would, they, they would be the exemplars of, of what we think of as golden Hollywood. You know, Humphrey Bogart with G. Robinson, Betty Davis, you know, all those 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 wonderful faces and, and names. Oh, yeah, they were. Yeah, they 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 did a really good job building celebrity around the type of movies they like to make. Right. And, you know, so, of course, they're, they're movies that are ripped from the headlines, the gritty kind of salt of the earth type movies, right? During the Depression, they're making movies about the Depression, not escapist movies about, you know, a better world. So they 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 develop very similar stars, right? You mentioned Robinson and Cagney, right? We've got these 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 city boys, right? To quote Robert Sklar, um, that that really mesh with the type of of brash a movie that they like to make, but then also right similar, right? Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland, right? You've got these, these aren't the the kinds of women you see at other studios, right? Like these, these are, these aren't just pretty faces, right? You don't want to mess with these women, uh, right? They will take you down. <laughs> and uh, Warner Brothers did a really good job also cultivating. I mean, one of my favorite 
stars of the 30s is Joan Blondell, right? I mean, mm-hmm. she's like the, I mean, a lot of, we talk about Betty Davis a lot, but it's like, man, Joan Blondell was every bit a, a badass as Betty Davis. Um, I think Betty Davis, you know, she was just better at going, you know, pushing back against her bosses than Joan Blondell was. But on screen, I, I for my money, it's hard to beat Joan Blondell uh, in the early 30s. And and yeah, it was it was top to bottom, big stars, little stars, supporting stars, you know, sporting talent. I mean, they they all there. There's like you know, at the second you if you turn on TCM in the middle of a movie and you don't know it, you'll be able to know if it's a Warner Brothers movie just by the types of characters that are that are on the screen. And I, I feel like that influence was a was very much top down. I mean, the kinds of movies that got greenlit, the kind of attitudes that the brothers had, you know, they were very public. Harry was very public, giving a lot of speeches, gave a lot of talks on the lot for his for his employees. So I feel like that that attitude was cultivated from the top and really taken care of. I mean, throughout, you know, so as long as the Warner Brothers were running the studio, it was very much kind of the tough, gritty studio that we love. And it's kind of yeah, it's kind of the, there's a sort of paternalism as well in the sense that, that every year he gives this sort of Christmas address or end of year address to everyone as all like okay in the family we're, this is what we're 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 all about and we're all about bringing peace and communicating and all this stuff. until the war happens and then it's like now we're all about getting ready to go to war right right. Right. Well, I mean, and that's what that was part of their genius, though. They were really good at reading the the social and political wins. And they knew and this is why they you know, right. They were so ahead of everyone on the Nazi front. Um, and that's why the Office of War Information had a lot of faith in Warner Brothers that, right after Pearl Harbor, because they were the ones who were pushing against the Nazis already before it was they what? were technically able even able to do it because of the production code. I watched. Um, I was a Nazi spy, or is it a Confessions of a Nazi spy? Confessions of a Nazi spy. Yeah, uh, I watched that as uh, in preparation for the interview because I'd never seen it. And reading your book, I was just like, "This is one film that I can't uh, not watch." Uh, <laughs> for talking to Chris, especially after uh, reading your earlier book as well about you know uh, Hollywood versus Hitler. Um, what a great film. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's obviously propaganda. It's obviously, oh, you know. It, yeah, it's because it feels like a documentary in, in parts. And the speeches to the, to the jury slash audience. But I love the way Edward G. Robinson puts on his most British accent. It's sort of like the least, I mean, I don't know how to say this, sort of, it, to use a euthanism of the time, the least ethnic he can possibly be as a, you know, as a sort of way of saying, look, I'm not speaking a, like an interested party here. I'm going to, I'm speaking like almost like James Mason or someone. Oh, for sure. Right. And, and we know just from the, the, the docu, the, the archive documents that, that Edward G. Robinson wanted to do this movie as a Jew, like he he wanted, you know, this was a right. personal interest to him. But in, and I'm glad you enjoyed it because this is a movie I, I sh- I've shown it in class, too. And, you know, students have really surprisingly enjoyed it. They, I mean, I give them a lot of this background and production and I give them a sense of what 1938-39 was like. And then, you know, and and la- that was two years ago last year. I did the same thing with The Mortal Storm, the MGM film. You know, they also enjoyed it. But it's, yeah, a lot of these movies. And that's this is a great example because that's what also draws me to Warner Brothers because they, they're they doing this with, their, with so many of their movies where they are really, really engaged in what's going on in the world, right? Like this was based on a, on a real story. I mean, Jack Warner sent screenwriters to follow the Leon Turow trial 
to <clears throat> understand this better and, and get some quotes and all of that and and uh make it into a movie and and i also always I, i've been i've been uh pushing a lot for, you know, if there's a thirties film that people haven't seen that I want them to see more of confessions of a Nazi spy is great. And you're right. It's, it's pretty clear propaganda, but like a great film that has aged really, really well is black Legion with Humphrey Bogart. Oh yeah. That's uh, it's one of my favorite, uh, Humphrey Bogart, sort of little, little known Humphrey Bogart films. Right. That's packed such a punch today. And that's, mm. um, you know, that was 37. So that lead, you know, that's, that's a precursor to Confession of a Nazi Spy. But yeah, Warner Brothers has all these movies lining up to that. And then Nazi Spy, you know, once again, they're leading the industry. And now other studios start making anti-Nazi movies. Because technically you couldn't do that because of the production code, right? You couldn't ridicule other nations. So this was tricky, but Warner Brothers said, screw it, we're going to do it. Uh, and then, of course, we get Mortal Storm and Great Dictator, right? We get Chaplin, you know, we get ev everyone else is, realizes, eh, maybe we can get away with this. Yeah, and I mean, it, the interesting thing is as well that you see them defining America in a way that it hasn't really been defined before because they're defining America as a place of equality, of uh, the, the minorities are protected, of, um, you know, religious observance is protected. And all these things, things are you know it, it's kind of open to debate whether you could truly define america in those terms prior you've got it kind of the nazis in a way are sort of are a good enemy to go against in this sense because it you you know it makes the good stuff really good oh, right well and, and the thing to remember here and and we talked about this last time i was on with my my previous book you know, when we look back now, it's easy to, you know, the Nazis are such like a stereotypical, like easy enemy. But in 1939, the country, you know, the United States was really divided on whether or not to even step in to go against the Nazis. So, you know, and that that's why the the U.S. Senate <laughs> went after forward. Hollywood. Fast forward to today when uh, even as we speak, the I think that Congress is, is, is forwarding a bill which has withdrawn help to Ukraine. Oh, right. Right. It, and, that, and that's why I, I keep mentioning I'm like that you, you couldn't have a better parallel to like Poland 1939 than Ukraine right now. Mm. And mm. I don't know how people don't understand that. I mean, it's it's plain as day. Um, but right. It's it's a similar there's a similar kind of, you know, it's it'll it'll probably be another thing. We look back on history and and people have to, I'll have to explain to my daughter, like, yeah, people were divided on this. <laughs> And it was the same thing, right? There was the isolationists and the interventionists, and there was a lot of, you know, and a lot of people were, were rightfully kind of frustrated about the, the, a lot of things that happened after World War One. So there was some of these people that were understandably hesitant, but there were other people who were hesitant because they were sympathetic to the Nazis, which was a whole other thing, including a lot of the you know, U.S. senators. So, uh, yeah, Warner Brothers was was pushing against that. And that's one of the things that Harry was like you said, yeah, he was giving he, he would give uh, in the Warner Club news. He would write these little speeches and he would he would talk about this. I mean, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't phony. I mean, he anybody who knew him, his family, his kids, um, people who worked with him. I mean, Harry was was he really, truly believed that the Warner Brothers studio and movies in general could be a source for good and equality and it could bring people together and build bridges and life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And that was something he, you know, that's why you have right the Warner Brothers uh, slogans of, you know, to educate and entertain. He, t- he used a lot and that kind of thing. I mean, he really, really believed that movies could be a source of good in a world where so many things were falling apart. Yeah, that's almost like, um, you know, uh, one of the the reef ideas of the BBC, you know, that we're, we're not just here to to push stuff out. We're here to educate people. And um, so Absolutely. When we, some of those battles that are, that are coming up, they're on the right side when it comes to um, the war and, and and earlier than many other people, as you say, uh, Black Legion is, is clearly about uh, um, a sign of that. But then as you get into sort of murkier waters of the 50s, you get the blacklists and you get something which I think is an interesting thing. I was reading your book as we've as we're undergoing uh, a writer's strike and now an actor's strike. And um, it was interesting to sort of put these two parts together as well. So, I mean, let's do the blacklist, um, but maybe we can go on the white writer strike as well quite quickly because the blacklist I feel a lot of people already know about. But what was sure. the Warner Brothers sort of, they had a little bit of a contradictory stance, didn't they? Because they were like, nobody should lose their living because of their political beliefs. And then we're going to have a blacklist. Yeah, it's it's tricky. And this is this is where like one of the things that I found that really opened my eyes was right, you know, so again, Harry Warner defends the the industry in his studio in 1941. And he actually told Jack not to waste his time with HUAC because he saw how phony these government officials were and 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 it was no different then as it was in 47. Even I even Ronald Reagan admits this in his memoir that that the this the the house going after Hollywood was they were just grabbing they were looking for headlines, right? They were right. looking for publicity that if we, you know, you know, look you know, Humphrey Bogart's flying in, right? Like we, you know, we that's gonna get headlines. Right. And, and Lauren Bacall and Danny Kaye and everybody coming in, the, you know, the committee for the First Amendment. So they yeah, they, like you said, they're the contradictory in the sense that they you know, they want to support their workers. And what I learned and what really, I think, helped me see going back through all the blacklist stuff again, because like you said, this is this is a horse that's been beaten dead for so long. Mm. But I, I don't know if you read Tom Doherty's show trial. No, I haven't. No, he he would be a, a good person to have on here, too. I think you'd love talking to him. Uh, he he did a really good job trying to parse through the politics of the 30s and how it bled into the 40s and how a lot of the studio bosses truly didn't care about the politics of their employees, but what they feared by 1947 was the political winds of the country, right? Mm. So if, if they look soft on communism, people are going to stop going to movies and if people stop going to movies, now we're all out of work. So 
he makes a really good case for showing that these moguls maybe were not as ideological with this as previous generations might have thought, you know, of course, you know, this is the kind of thing that's so contentious that, you know, decades almost have to go by before we can, you know, see it clearly. And and also maybe Dalton Trumbo was right. Maybe this was only victims, right? Like this was, mm-hmm. it was just, it was just a bad time. And, and I get that sense from, from Jack too. I, you know, when you, when you listen to his testimony and even read the closed test closed door testimony he did before the public one he seems scared as hell like he mm-hmm. doesn't seem i mean and this whole like pest removal fund that my brothers will fund i mean that that sounds so constructed and desperate um and even walt disney right you listen to his and he's he's sitting there like uh like he's he, you know he doesn't seem like oh uh, like i you know I'm, i want to dedicate my life to getting the commies like they they, they seem frustrated and um you know, not that I agree with what they did, but it's yeah, again just trying to look at it as this this entire industry put in a really tough spot because the U.S. government is going going against them, and the entire political winds of the country are hinging seemingly on what Hollywood does right here and now, which is a terrifying spot to be in. Mm. I, you know, I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to try to 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 be saddled with that. Um, and that's why it's just unfortunate that Harry was, you know, he was old. He kind of had one foot out of out the door by the late 40s. And, uh, yeah, I think if he would have been subpoenaed, it might have been a little bit different because I don't, mm-hmm. you know, because he he had embarrassed the senators. So I think he wouldn't have been afraid of Thomas and Nixon in 47. Right. But it's a, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird time. I think, you know, and long story short, I could babble on forever about this, but I feel like we can see it a little bit more nuanced today where we don't, you know, we don't have to endorse HUAC, but we can see that the, the studios were in a really, really difficult spot. Right. Right. And, and yeah, and the pressures, I mean, you can kind of see it as well today in the sense of like the pressures of feeling like you're about to be canceled and your whole career is going to go down the tubes that, okay, you don't want to give a, you know, you don't want to say to anyone, look, it's a little bit more nuanced than than just outright condemnation or outright support. But the minute you and nuance enters the argument, you've kind of lost, you know, that's going to be, you're going to be beaten yep. to death by both sides. Um, so moving, moving on to the strike and, and something which is, is very relevant today. I mean, you're, you're, um, I mean, a tiny, you know, I, I push back on the Hitler versus Hollywood books. So, you know, that I'll put, always push back a little bit on your books um, out of love. <laughs> oh, always, always, always. always. Um, I know the the sort of gangster background of the union and the infiltration of the unions and and that violence was it, it's horrific and and that um, there's nothing. But I I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about why were these why were the strikes? I mean these people uh, obviously were feeling like the the work practices where they were working were weren't you know they were seeing the studio bosses living off the fat of the land and they they felt they were contributing to that and they weren't getting a fair share fair shake so i, I just felt there was a little it, it just felt like this is the unions against the warners rather than well they could have also treated the, the 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 workers a little bit better and maybe avoided some of this oh you're you're exactly right no and that, that's something i should have added another layer to because when i was looking through this i was seeing it more as like the mob against right 
Warners. Cause right at this time, IATSE was, you know, you had Bioff and Brown and you had, you know, these, these, these mobsters that were literally murdering rival union members and stuff like that. So which is, I, I, which is horrible as well. I mean, that's right, another, right. that's another thing. So there, that that's kind of where where my head was at when I was writing a lot of this part, where it was I'm I'm looking at it as kind of a mob versus the studio thing. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the reasons for the strikes, um, and the reasons they got so ugly, some of it was mob influence, but also some of it. I mean, this is right when when you're talking, you know, 30s and 40s Hollywood. Working at these studios, even for the stars, was not glamorous, right? right? These were these were you know when we think of you know dream factories, the key word here is factory. Like these were very like the day to day was very you know the the day to you know the hour to hour experience during a day was very blue collar. I mean, it was tough, it was hot. The days were long, six days a week. Um, so so they everybody had really good reason to push back. I mean, the you know the the contracts were oppressive. And I guess there's there's been so much written about that. I guess I, I felt like I didn't need to you know go back into that. But no, you're 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 completely right, and I agree with you that there's you know that there there were layers of this uprising that maybe I just felt go without saying, but shouldn't sure. go without saying because we should remember this that yeah the the these were not always great places to work, um, and even for uh, even for a lot of the celebrities, it was you know. But then if you think if it's tough for Betty Davis, it's got to be really tough for that assistant director, yeah. right? Or yeah. or the script girl, or you know what you know all the below the line labor that often gets forgotten. Even in today's strikes, right? That that gets you know I I just spent ten days in L.A. doing research and some book talks, and I have friends that are that are writers and producers, and they're all just they said the the attrition in Hollywood right now is it's like 10, 20% people that just had to like move home, go home because yeah. they, you know, they can't, you know, can't afford to live in Los Angeles for however many months with no pay. Um, so you're just, lo you're, you're, you're losing big chunks of the industry as well. And it's always going to be the very bottom that suffers the worst. So um, that's, that's a really unfortunate part. And then restaurants that aren't going out of business and stuff, well, right. That what's the temperature? What's it, what's the temperature there? Uh, metaphorically, what's the, you know, how do you feel? Is it going to go on and on or what's the, well, there was just the news that, that, you know, there, everyone's, you know, the WGA and the, and the studios are coming back to the table, but I mean that you can, the tension, you can feel it out there for mm. sure. I mean, I, mm. you know, I was driving, you know, from Burbank to the, the Herrick library multiple days and, you know, driving past Disney and driving past Warner brothers. There's people out there every day picketing. Mm. Mm. And um, one of my friends had said, you know, I didn't see as many people at universal when I drove by and I was told I must've missed this if it was covered in the trades, but I was told that what, what you're not supposed to do out there in the summer is, is, trim the trees over the sidewalks because it's the hottest part of the year and it's going to, you know, it's bad for the trees. Warner or uh, uh, Universal cut back all the foliage so the sidewalks would be hot as hell for people picketing. I mean, so it got, it got ugly really yeah. early on. So, I mean, that's all that's, I'm sure was part of the same time when, I, mean, I don't know if it was Iger, whoever came out and said, oh, we'll just wait until people start losing their homes. It's, yeah, everyone is is mad. Um, I had dinner with a, a friend of a friend who's a, a captain in the WGA and he's, I mean, you just mention it and he starts getting hot. Right. Uh, right. You know, so it's, yeah, it is, it is very, when people talk about existential crisis in the press, when you go out there and you sit down at a restaurant, you could feel it. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, it, I, who knew that, you know, putting your industry in the hands of a bunch of venture capitalists was a bad idea. <laughs> right. Well, and that's one thing that that has come up in, in recent weeks talking about this book is like, what was the difference between, you know, the, you know, the Warners or the studios then, you know, it's like on some or what would they do now is, is a question that always comes up. And it's like, well, I'm sure, you know, they push back on all the unions, all the stuff, you know, they wanted complete control. So they would be doing some of the similar stuff of the, the guys today, I have no doubt. But the big difference, though, is that the Warners, you know, like a lot of these other studio founder industry founders, they were movie people. You know, they loved movies. Right. Harry Wright believed in, in the role of movies in the global society. I don't get that sense from these, you know, the venture capitalists today. Right. I don't I don't think I don't know if Jeff Bezos has really thought about the power of movies. Right. Yeah. So even though he bought I think he bought Jack Warner's estate. Right. But I don't know if he. Actually, and but these people, you know, for like I said, you can we can talk about their the ways they 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 treated labor, but they truly believed in their product mm. in a way that I, I'm not seeing currently. No, absolutely not. I was reading the other day that Netflix always cancel their shows after two seasons because the third season everybody gets pay bumps and everybody gets oh, uh, you know sick pay and vacation pay and all this sort of stuff. So they they cancel this and then they restart the same see uh, you know the same type of thing but with a vaguely different name. Um, and it's just like oh, for uh, sure. And and the version of that the studios would do, including Warner Brothers, like in the 30s and 40s, if they had a star that was on on the rise and was coming to the end of a contract, and know this person knows that all right, well, I'm worth more now, they would say, Hey, we're gonna extend your contract for seven years right now for the same pay. Yeah. Right. And then try to lock you into that before, you know, now that you're famous, right? And that was that was what was was you know a, a big part of a lot of the debates between, you know, the studio and, you know, Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis and Cagney, the ones that pushed back the hardest. So it was it was yeah, that was the studio era version of exactly what Netflix was doing right I'd, I'd always have i like the, the the point you make in your book of always have like a slightly younger guy coming up as well or slightly younger girl coming up as well so that the tab hunter sort of yep. role he could when james dean dies he's suddenly there and uh he he's ready to step into all those roles right well and like warner brothers one of my favorite warner brothers films from the 50s a face in the crowd it's, it's the same thing right when when andy griffith's character you know falls you know, Walter Matthau gives that good lecture at the end, like, hey, there's always going to be another one here, you know, yeah, younger, yeah. and and everyone's going to forget about you. And yeah, there was a lot of truth to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of funny as you get older as well, you don't, you get less angry at things. Of like, I used to get angry at, you know, music groups that I thought were to particularly asinine and it's like oh there'll be at least three this decade there's no point you know <laughs> right. i'll see their birth their rise and their death within the decade you know i don't yep. need to worry about it um so let's get to the final sort of tragedy of the book really which is which is the breakup of the of of the 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 family uh with with jack's betrayal of of harry in the uh i mean this is sort of, i mean it's shakespearean it is Give, give, it, us, it, give us the gruesome details on this one. Oh, yeah. So this is, it really is. I mean, I kept going back and forth on what to call this, you know, the chapter subtitle in here. And I, and I, I while I was writing it, I just wrote the betrayal because that's what Cass Warner put in her book. Yeah. 
And I couldn't come up with a di- better, different way. It's that's what it is. It just it is that. And and it's interesting because in recent months I've I've been put in touch with uh, Jack Warner's grandson Greg Orr, and he pushes back on this a little bit because I mean he, he, justifiably I mean he doesn't really defend Jack. I mean he he's a warts and all on Jack, um, but he does make the point that you know J- well, I'm getting ahead of this a little bit, but you know Jack w- would have been in the trades that Jack might have stayed running the studio. But basically, what happens is right going back to the influence of the parents, this all for one, one for all. Harry and Albert and Jack start to, and of course, Harry and Albert are a lot older and they want to retire. And they're like, why don't we sell our stock and we do it all together? Just like mom and dad said we should, you know, we stay together. We're going to, we, we built this together. We go out together and it'll be the best ode to our parents. Um, and they all agree and they sell their shares. And what happens is what Jack does is he, he takes a backdoor deal to buy his shares back, but not only to buy his shares back, but to take Harry's job as studio president. So this is, you know, and again, Greg or, you know, this was Serge Semenenko was the was the um, finance guru from out east that was was shepherding this whole purchase. And it, it was in the trades that that they're they're going to need, unlike today, they're going to need. Uh, we, we need a Hollywood insider to run the studio. Right. And so Jack's name had been floated. Um, but what was different here was it, it wasn't that he was just running the studio is that he he got, you know, he bought back into the company and then took Harry's job. And when Harry heard this, he had a heart attack from which he never fully recovered. He died two years later, but he had a heart attack hearing this. And that tells you how, grave this truly betrayal was i mean i think harry you know greg greg or he makes a good point that while harry should have seen this coming on one level maybe but i think harry was so he believed so much in his family that he thought that jack would do a lot of things jack's gonna run around on his wife jack's gonna treat the rest of the family like garbage but he's not gonna do this I really thought that he thought this would be a bridge too far, even for Jack. And I think that's why it hit him so hard. And uh, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking to to read. I mean, you know, even just going through all this in the interviews and the press and everybody's stories and writing this, you know, I almost felt like my own little bit of PTSD just going through it. Like, wow, you broke, this you broke my heart, Fredo. You broke my heart. Uh, absolutely. It absolutely was that. It was like, man, this sucks. <laughs> This was so awful. But it's King Lear, isn't it? I mean, it's like, you know, I'm going to divide my kingdom and I'm going to go and retire. And then it's like, oh, no, we'll accept it. But actually, we're going to do this in the background. Absolutely. And what's interesting about this, too, I mean, going back to like really needing movie people on the studio. I mean, so Jack became the president of Warner Brothers, but he didn't move to New York to then, you know, reign over the entire operation like Harry did. He stayed in L.A., as the studio president and still oversaw movie production and was watching dailies and, and weighing in on edits and green lighting movies and all this and dealing with the censors, all of this stuff um, mm-hmm. as studio president. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely wild. There's another question I wanted to ask, um, which is, 
the Warner Brothers as a uh, as a studio in some ways sort of epitomize how we culturally look at studios now. I'm thinking of like um, you can't help but watch Barton Fink and see uh, the studio head wearing a World War you know a, a, universe, a uniform yeah. and and the the lawyer. Um, uh, played by Tony Shalhoub, uh, who, who I think he has the same name or is even based on the, the real-life lawyer who got uh, Errol Flynn off uh, his rape charges. Oh, Jerry Giesler, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. he's always, yeah. He's always... Uh, uh, people are going, just phone call for you, Mr. Giesler. Geisler! <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, Right, and that's what's so great about... Yeah, this this is this is the kind of stuff that is justifiably we should poke Jack about, right? Like he's, you know, all these studio heads have some kind of service to the war through the Office of War Information. Um, but you know, they're not they're not fighting overseas, right? But they still come back and they wear their uniforms and like everyone had to call Jack Warner Colonel Warner and all this kind of stuff. And it really it it's laughable and it just shows a kind of arrogance. That is is just kind of funny. It's like, you know, it's like when you there was a service of the war. Absolutely. But at the same time, you know, there there were actual movie stars that went you know, like Jimmy Stewart wasn't doing that. He was a fighter pilot. Right. He wasn't <laughs> you know, he wasn't going around telling everyone to address him by his military rank, you know, and all this kind of stuff. You know, his service rank. Um, Lee Marvin but- was a sniper. And, right. you know, and he got dishonorably discharged, despite the fact that he was in combat and was wounded a whole number of times, you know? Right. But, uh, yeah, it, I mean, even presidents sort of had something to do with the war. You don't see them parading around in uniform, hopefully. Well, actually, no, George W. Bush, that's a sort of... He was roundly criticized for that. He was sort of like, no, the president shouldn't be wearing a combat jacket. It's not his, that's that's beneath the, you know, that's not how it should be. Yeah, when you're sitting as the president, right? Like you need to... Exactly, separation. Observe your rank, I guess. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that, that's amazing. I really enjoyed the book. I was so I was so, so looking forward to talking to you about it, Chris, because you, you I, I think as well, I loved your earlier book, but I really did want to see this broader uh, picture, which are you, you know this broader canvas which you're able to operate on. I am going to ask you for another recommended book so you get a, you get an opportunity to uh, to recommend a, another book. Oh, recommending a book. This is always the hardest question, right? It is. It is. There are so many. And I'm just trying to think of what I, well, I mean, I'm just actually going back through. I mean, I just, I rewatched Chinatown um, the other right. night and I, I, yeah, I'm rereading Sam's book on the big goodbye. And it's like, I, I remember it being awesome, but it's like, wow, this is even better than I remembered reading it three years ago. Don't you um, hate, don't you hate him? <laughs> oh, it's so good. A little bit. <laughs> and he's got a new one coming out on Coppola. In November, in couple, I think, in a couple of months, and yeah. I'm also reading. Well, and another one. I mean, so that book, a lot of you know, a lot of your listeners have probably read that. So one that you haven't read that I'm reading for a review is uh, Scott Iman's book on Chaplin, oh, and wow. um, it's called Charlie Chaplin versus America. So it's a really interesting snap. I mean, he he chronicles all Ch- Chaplin's entire life, but really focuses on how Chaplin was treated as the kind of social and cultural winds of the United States shifted and how he was kind of railroaded by a lot of people. And um, the the goal of his book, he says from the beginning of the book, this book is, you know, Chaplin was canceled in the forties and he's going to, he's going to try to save him. Mm. So um, that's, that's coming out in like a month or so. 
So I'm I, I finished that a couple of days ago. So I would recommend that. That's that's an upcoming book Excellent. that I can recommend. Excellent. Oh, I'd love to get Scott on the show actually because he's uh, I've read his um, book on John Wayne, and John Wayne is one of those characters who I don't know you you, you sort of always have there as a kind of movie icon. Yep. And then you read Scott's book and you go back and you rewatch those movies and you think, oh my God, this guy's actually, he's a really good actor. Yeah, I can really see yeah. what he does and I can appreciate and, and there's, it in any way. There's, there's parallels between that book and the Chaplin one in that there's these are two figures where there's so much mythology built up around them and a lot of it is garbage. Right. So he's, he's trying to cut through that. He does this really well in his John Wayne book too, because right, I mean, so much of, John Wayne is interpreted today through that like unfortunate Playboy interview he gave, mm. but so much of his life contradicts everything he said in that interview. And it's very similar with Chaplin where there's, there was a lot of FBI investigation and a lot of accusations and a lot of stuff. And as you know, there's certain things about Chaplin that's cringy. It's like, yeah, here was this 50 year old guy who liked 18 year old girls. And it's like, that that's still weird, right? Maybe not illegal, but still definitely weird and cringy. But there was a lot of political stuff that that he does a really good job parsing through that I think brings to life some of his later movies. And and what I learned through that book is why I actually really like like King of New York and some of these later movies, because I feel like we're getting the real Chaplin in a really interesting way. And Scott's book is a great asset to helping us you know, bring a lot more to those mo- those later movies, right? It's easy to love Great Dictator and Modern Times and City Lights and you know, The Kid and all these. Um, but it's not as easy to love those later films. And I think that book gives us the tools to really dive into those in a meaningful way. Yeah, I, I'm uh, talking about Dana Stevens earlier uh, before we were taping. There's uh, the idea of um, Limelight as well and how the, he, he sort of cuts those the scenes that he does with keaton it's that there could be more of that and and he, he cuts yeah. it out because it maybe he doesn't want to be compared to keaton and that's such he an doesn't. interesting well, chapter right that there's some stories in in iman's new book about that about you know people you know fan you know fanning over keaton and chaplin getting really sad yeah you know yeah. thinking like but i'm but i'm i'm chaplin <laughs> yeah but i'm here i mean cheapest yep. creepers i mean there's you and there's keaton and then there's a long way down before you hit harold lloyd i mean those, oh for sure yeah. yeah no argument there absolutely absolutely there's keaton and, and chaplin are, it is a little bit like my favorite stanley kubrick film it's it's, it's whichever one i'm watching you know yeah for yeah. sure yeah they're the, those two are really in a league of their own yeah, yeah, and and you can then we talked about this transition from from silent to sound, right? I mean, when you look at Chaplin and Keaton, you can see why they you know didn't make as many sound movies, and you know why their careers were different because it's like they they were truly the peak of the medium as it was silent, and it still has an impact. Um, you know, I know I, I know a couple comedy writer, one comedy writer in L.A. who has worked on some big shows. I mean, he's told me a lot of people he knows out there still study silent comedy. Uh, oh, to yeah. to inform their you know current writing. I mean the the you know the cadence and everything. I mean that you can still learn from that, right? When you're adding words. I mean just the way they understood, you know, the beats and and when you know to you when to take the fall or when to to make the face or when to do nothing um, was it's incredible. 
how long between a setup and a callback you can you can stretch it you know and uh, yeah absolutely that that you watch Sherlock Jr and I don't think I think that film has everything you need to know about film comedy in there you know um, oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was just going to mention that film because I use in my intro class I in my intro to film class I show that to students who have never seen most of them have never seen a black and white movie let alone a silent movie and it's it's a great one because that's like 45 minutes long and it's yeah. you know it's not a big commitment but they they warm up to it real fast and start laughing at it like it's a brand new comedy yeah made today yeah. I mean it's, it's incredible that it's almost what was that 24 so almost 100 years you know it you know and it's here it still has that impact it's incredible right. it's on my top 10 so my top 10 absolutely well listen chris it's been wonderful uh talking to you as ever and um and i hope everyone will will uh read warner brothers it's uh um it's already out right it's already yeah it came out on the 5th of september yep excellent okay so everybody can order it straight away thanks chris it's been great talking always a blast thank you was me and Chris talking about Warner Brothers and issues they're relating. He uh, recommended two film books. He uh, recommended Sam Watson's um, book on Chinatown, uh, The Big Goodbye, as well as looking forward to his new book on Zeotrope Studios and the Coppolas, which uh, hopefully Sam is going to come on. book is due for release in November, so hopefully he'll come on sometime around then to talk about it. And uh, he's also anticipated a book on Charlie Chaplin by Scott Eyman, uh, a great biographer of John Wayne and John Ford, and a writer who I have hoped to get on the podcast for some time. And I'm happy to say uh, I think he's going to come on and talk about Charlie Chaplin. So we've got that to look forward to in the future. Next week, Ian Nathan is going to be on the podcast talking about his new book about Clint Eastwood. So that's all to look forward to. But until then, listener, please take care. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.